Chapter Two of Ride Proud Rebel by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Guns in the Night. There were sounds enough in the middle of the night to tell the initiated that a troop was on the march. Creak of saddle leather, click of shod hoof, now and then the smothered exclamation of a man shaken out of a cavalryman's mounted doze. To Drew's trained ears, all this was loud enough to send any Union picket calling out the guard, yet there was no indication that the enemy ahead was alert. Near two o'clock he baited, and the advance were walking their horses into the fringe of Lexington. This was homecoming for a good many of the men sagging in the saddles. Morgan's old magic was working again. Escaping from the Ohio prison, he had managed to gather up the remnants of a badly shattered command, weld them together, and lead them up from Georgia to their old fighting fields, the country which they considered rightfully theirs, and in which during other years they had piled one humiliating defeat for the bluecoats on another. General Morgan could not lose in Kentucky. And they already had one minor victory to taste sweet. Mount Sterling had fallen into their hold as easily as it had before. Now Lexington, with the horses they needed, friends and families waiting to greet them. Captain Tom Quirk's Irish brogue, unmistakably even in a half-whisper, came out of the dark. Pull up, boys. Drew came to a halt with his flanking scout. There was a faint drum of hoofs from behind as three horsemen caught up with the first wave of Quirk's scouts. Taking the flag in, Drew caught a snatch of sentence passed between the leader of the newcomers and his own officer. He recognized the voice of John Castleman, his former company commander. Worth a try. That was Quirk. But when the three had cantered on into the mouth of the street, the scout captain turned his head to the waiting shadows. Rennie, Bruce, Croxton, give them cover. Drew sent Shawnee on, his carbine, resting ready across his saddle. The streets were quiet enough, too quiet. These dark houses showed no signs of life, but surely the Yankees were not so confident that they would not have any pickets posted, and Fort Clay had its garrison. Then that ominous silence was broken by Castleman's call, bearer of flag of truce. Morgan's men? A woman called from a window up ahead, her voice so low-pitched Drew heard only a word or two. Castleman answered her, before he gave the warning. Battery down the streets, boys, take to the sidewalks. A lantern bobbed along in their direction. Drew had glimpse of a blue-uniformed arm above it. A moment later Castleman rode back. One of his companions swerved close by, and Drew recognized Key Morgan, the general's brother. They say no surrender. Perhaps that was what they said, but the skirmishers were now drifting into town. Orders snapped from man to man through the dark. The crackle of small arms fire came sporadically, to be followed by the heavier boom-boom as cannonballs from Fort Clay ricocheted through the streets, the Yankees being forced back into the protection of that stronghold. Riders threaded through alleys and cross streets Lamps flared up in house windows. There was a pounding on doors and shouted greetings. Fire 
made a splash of angry color at the depot, to be answered with similar blazes at the warehouses. Spur up those crowbaits of yours, boys. Quirk rounded up the scouts. We're out for horses, only the best, remember that. Out of the now aroused Lexington, just as daylight was gray overhead, they were on the road to Ashland. If Red Springs might have proven poor picking, John Clay's stables did not. One sleek thoroughbred after another was led from the stalls, while Quirk fairly purred. Skedaddle, would you believe it? Here's Skedaddle himself. Just aching to show heels to the bluebellies, ain't you? He greeted the great racer. Now, that's the sort of stuff we need. Give us another chase across the Ohio, clean up to Canada, with a few like him under us. Sweep them clean and get going. The general wants to see the catch before noon. Drew watched the mounts being led down the lane. Beautiful, yes, but to his mind, not one of them was the equal of the gray colt he had seen at Red Springs. Now that was a horse, and he was not tempted now to strip his saddle off Shawnee and transfer to any one of the princes of equine blood passing by him. He knew the roan, and Shawnee knew his job. Knows more about the work than I do sometimes, Drew thought. You, Rennie. Drew swung Shawnee to the left as Quirk hailed him. Take a point out on the road, just like some stubborn Yankee, to try and cut away a nice little catch like this. Yes, sir. Drew merely sketched a salute. Discipline was always free and easy in the scouts. The day was warm. He was glad he had managed to find a lightweight shirt back at the warehouse in town. If they didn't win Lexington to keep, at least all of the raiders were going to ride out well-mounted, with boots on their feet and whole clothing on their backs. The Union quartermasters did just fine by Morgan's boys, as always. Shawnee's ears went forward alertly, but Drew did not need that signal of someone approaching. He backed into the shadow, shade of a tree, and sat tense with colt in hand. A horse nickered. There was a whir of wheels. Drew edged Shawnee out of cover and quickly holstered his weapon, riding out to bring to a halt the carriage horse between the shafts of an English dog cart. He pulled off his dusty gray hat. Good morning, Aunt Mariana. Such a polite greeting, the same words he would have used three years ago had they met in the Hall of Red Springs on their way to breakfast. He wanted to laugh, or was it really laughter which lumped in his throat? Her momentary expression of outrage faded as she leaned forward to study his face, and she relaxed her first half-threatening grip on her whip. Though Aunt Marianna had never been a beauty, her present air of assurance and authority became her, just as the smart riding habit was better suited to her somewhat angular frame than the ruffles and bows of the drawing-room. Drew, her recognition of his identity had come more slowly than Boyd's, and it sounded almost wary. At your service, ma'am. He found himself again using the graces of another way of life, far removed from his sweat-stained shirt and patched breeches. He shot a glance over his shoulder, making sure that they were safely alone on that stretch of highway. After all, one horse among so many 
would be no great loss to his commander. You'd better turn around. The boys will have Lady Jane out of that shaft before you get into Lexington, if you keep on. And the Yankees are still peppering the place with round shot. He wondered why she was driving without a groom, but did not quite dare to ask. Drew, is Boyd here with you? Boyd? Don't be evasive with me, boy. She wrapped that out with an officer snap. He left a note for Mary, two words misspelled, and a big blot, all foolishness about joining Morgan. Said you had been to Red Springs, and he was going along. Why did you do it, Drew? Cousin Mary, after Sheldon, she can't lose Boyd, too. To put such a wild idea into that child's head. Drew's lip thinned into a half-grimace. He was still cast in the role of culprit, it seemed. I didn't influence Boyd to do anything, Aunt Mariana. I told him I wouldn't take him with me, and I meant it. If he ran away, it was his own doing. She was still measuring him with that intent look, as if he were a slightly unsatisfactory colt being put through his paces in the training paddock. Then you'll help me get him back home? That was more of a statement than a question, delivered in a voice which was all matic, enough to awaken by the mere sound all the old resistance in him. He nodded at the Lexington Road. There are several thousand men ahead there, ma'am. Hunting Boyd out if he wants to hide from me, and he will, is impossible. He's big enough to pass a recruiter. They ain't too particular about age these days, and he'll stay just as far from me as he can until he is sworn in. He already knows how I feel about his enlisting. Her gloved hands tightened on the reins. If I could see John Morgan himself. If you could get to Lexington and find him. But boy's just a child. He hasn't the slightest idea of war, except the stories he hears. No idea of what could happen to him, or what this means to Mary. All this criminal nonsense about being a soldier. Sabres and spurs and dashing around behind a flag. The wrong flag, too. She caught her breath in an unusual betrayal of emotion. And now she studied Drew with some deliberation, noting his thinness, itemizing his shabbiness. He smiled tiredly. No, I ain't Boyd's idea of a returning hero, am I? He agreed with her unspoken comment. Also, we Rebs don't use sabers. They ain't worth much in a real skirmish. She flushed. Drew, why did you go? Was it all because of father? I know he made it hard for you. You know? Drew regarded a circling bird in the section of the sky above her head. Some day, I hope I'll discover just what kind of no-account Hunt Rainey was to make his son so unacceptable. Most of the Texans I've ridden with in the Army haven't been so bad. Some of them are downright respectable. I don't know. Again she flushed. It was a long time ago when it all happened. I was just a little girl, and father, well, he has very strong prejudices. But, Drew, for you to go against everything you've been taught, to turn rebel, that added to his bitterness. And now Boyd is trying to go the same way. Isn't there something you can do? I can't stand to see that look in Mary's eyes. If we can just get Boyd home again. Don't hope too much. Drew was certain that nothing Mary Anna Forbes could do was going to lead Boyd Barrett back home again. On the other hand, 
If the boy had not formally enlisted, perhaps the rigors of one of the general's usually cross-country scrambles might be disillusioning. But having tasted the quality of Boyd's stubbornness in the past, Drew doubted that. For long months he had been able to cut right out of his life Red Springs and all it stood for. Now it was trying to put reins on him again. He shifted his weight in the saddle. He's been restless all spring, his aunt continued. We might have known that, given an opportunity like this, the boy would do something wild. Only the waste, the sinful waste. I can't go back and face Mary without trying something, anything. Can't you, Drew? I don't know. He couldn't harden himself to tell her the truth. I'll try, he promised vaguely. Drew, a change in tone brought his attention back to her. She looked disturbed, almost embarrassed. Have you had a hard time? You look so thin and tired. Is there anything you need? He flinched from any such attack on the shell he had built against the intrusion of Red Springs. For a second or two, feeling once more the rasp against raw nerves. We don't get much time for sleep when the general's on the prod. Horse-stealing and such keeps us a mite busy, according to your Yankee friends, and we have to pay our respects to them, just to keep them reminded that this is Morgan country. I'll warn you again, Aunt Mariana. Keep Lady Jane out of Lexington today, if you want to keep her. He gathered up his reins. Boyd told me about Grandfather, he added in a rush. I'm sorry. And he was, he told himself. Sorry for Aunt Mariana, who had to stay at Red Springs now, and even a little, in an impersonal way, for the old man, who must find inactivity a worse prison than any stone-walled room. But it was being polite about a stranger. Major Forbes, he's all right? Yes, only Drew... Again the urgency in her voice held him against his will. Boyd. He was saved further evasion by a carrying whistle from down the road, the signal to pull in pickets. Pursing his own lips, he answered, I have to go. I'll do what I can. He set Shawnee pounding along the pike. He did not look back. If he were ever to fulfill his promise to locate Boyd, that would have to come later. Quirk's horse-catch delivered, the scouts were on the move again. On the Georgetown Road, riding at a pace which suggested they must keep ahead of a boiling wasp's nest of Yankees. There was an embarrassment of blue-coated prisoners on the march between two lines of gray uniforms, and pockets of the enemy, such as that at Fort Clay, were left behind. The strike northward took on a feverish drive. Georgetown, with its streets full of women and cheering males, too old or too young to be riding with the columns. Mid-afternoon, Friday, and the heat rising from the pavement as only June heat could. Then they reached the Frankfurt Road, and the main command halted. The scouts ate in the saddle as they fanned out along the Frankfurt Pike, pushing towards Cynthiana. Sam Croxton strode back from filling his canteen at a farmyard well, and scowled at Drew, who had dismounted and loosened cinch to cool Shawnee's back. Cynthiana, now. I'm beginning to wonder, Rennie, if we know just which way we're going. Drew shrugged. 
Might be a warm reception waiting us there. Drake figures about 500 Yankees on the spot, and trains coming in with more all the time. Sighing, Craxton rubbed his hands across his freckled face, smearing road dust and sweat into a gritty mask. Me, I could do with four or five hours sleep right down here in the road. Always providing no bluebelly trot along to stir me up. Seems like I ain't had ten minutes straight nap since we joined up with the main column. Scouting ahead a couple of weeks ago, you could at least fill your belly and rest up at some farm. Them boys pushing the prisoners back there sure has it tough. Bet some of them been eating dust most of the day. Be glad you're not riding in one of the wagons, nursing a hole in your middle. Drew wet his handkerchief, or the sad gray rag which served that purpose, and carefully washed out Shawnee's nostrils, rubbing the horse gently down the nose and around his pricked ears. Croxton spat, and a splotch of brown tobacco juice pocketed the roadside gravel. Now ancient cheerfully observed, No, I've no hole in my middle, or my top, or my bottom, and I don't want none neither. All I want is about an hour's sleep without Quirker Drake breathing down my back, wanting to know why I'm playing wagon dog. The which I ain't going to have very soon by the looks of it. So he mounted, spat again with accuracy enough to stun a grasshopper off a nodding weed top, which feet seemed to restore a measure of his usual good nature. Got him. You coming, Rennie? The hours of Friday afternoon, evening, night, crawled by, leadenly, as far as the men in the straggling column were concerned. The dash which had carried them through from the Virginia border, through the old-time whirling attack on Mount Sterling only days earlier, and which had brought them into and beyond Lexington, was seeping from tired men who slept in the saddle or fell out, too drudged with fatigue to know that they slumped down along the country fences, unconscious gifts for the enemy doggedly drawing in from three sides. There was the corps of veterans who had seen this before, been a part of such punishing riding in Illinois, Ohio, and Kentucky. The signs could be read, and as Drew spurred along that faltering line of march late that night, carrying a message he felt a creeping chill which was not born of the night wind nor a warning of swamp fever. Before daylight there was another halt. He had to let Shawnee pick his own careful path around and through groups of dismounted men, sleeping with their weapons still belted on, their mounts, heads drooping, standing sentinel. Saturday's dawn, and the advance had plowed ahead to the forks of the road some three miles out of Cynthiana. One brigade moved directly toward the town. The second, with a detachment of scouts, headed down the right-hand road to cross the Licking River and move in upon the enemy's rear. From the hill they could sight a stone fence barricade, glistening with the metal of waiting musket barrels. Then suddenly the old miracle came. Men who had clung through the hours to their saddles by sheer willpower alone, tightened their lines and were alertly alive. The ear-stinging, throat-scratching yell screeched high over the pound of the artillery, the vicious spat of minnie-balls, 
a whip-length of dusty gray-brown, lashed forward, flanking the stone barrier. Blue-coated men wavered, broke, ran for the bridge, headed into the streets of the town. The gray lash curled around a handful of laggards and swept them into captivity. Then the brigade thundered on, driving the enemy back before they could reform. Until the Yankees holed up in the courthouse, the depot, a handful of houses. Before eight o'clock it was all over, and the confidence of the weary raiders was back. They had showed them. Drew had the usual mixture of sharp scenes to remember as his small portion of the engagement while he spurred Shawnee on past the blaze which was spreading through the center of town, looking out for more buildings no one seemed to have the organization nor the will to save. He was riding with the advance of Giltner's brigade, double-quicking it downriver to Keller's Bridge. In town the Yankees were prisoners, but here, a long line with heavy reserves and wedges of blue behind, strung out across open fields. Once more the yell rose in sharp, ululating wails, and the ragged line swept from the road, tightening into a semblance of the saber blades Morgan's men disdained to use, clashed. Then, after what seemed like only a moment's jarring pause, it was on the move once more, while before it crumpled motes of blue were carried down the slope to the river bank, there to steady and stand fast. Drew's throat was aching and dry, but he was still croaking hoarsely, hardly feeling the slam of his colt's recoils. They were up to that blue line, firing at deadly point-blank range, and part of him wondered how any men could still keep their feet and face back to such an assault with ready muskets. By his side a man skipped as might a marcher trying to catch the step, then folded up sliding limply to the trampled grass. Men were flinging up hands, holding empty cartridge boxes along the attacking line, too many of them. Others reversed the empty carbines to use them in clubbing duels back and forth. The Union troops fell back, firing still, making their way into the railroad cut. Now the river was a part defense for them. Bayonets caught the sunlight in angry flashing and they bristled. You, Rennie! Drew lurched back under the clutch of a frantic hand belonging to an officer he knew. Get back to the horse lines. Bring up the holder's ammunition. On the double. Drew ran, panting, his boots slipping and scraping on the grass as he dodged around prone men who still moved or others who lay only too still. A horse reared, snorted, and was pulled down to four feet again. Ammunition! Drew got the word out as a squawk, grabbing at the boxes the waiting men were already tossing to him. Then through the haze, which had been riding his mind since the battle began, he caught a clear sight of a fifth man there, and there was no disguising the blond hair of the boy so eagerly watching the struggle below. Drew had found Boyd, at a time, he could do nothing about it. With his arms full, the scout turned to race down the slope again, only to sight the white flag waving from the railroad cut. More prisoners to be marched along, joining the other dispirited ranks. 
Drew heard one worried comment from an officer. They would soon have more prisoners than guards. He went back, trying to locate Boyd, but to no purpose. And the rest of the day was more confusion. Heat, never-ending weariness, and always the sense of there being so little time. Rumors raced along the lines. Five thousand, ten thousand blue bellies on the march, drawing in from every garrison in the bluegrass. And those who had been hunted along the Ohio roads a year before were haunted by that old memory of disaster. Once more they made their way through the streets of Cynthiana, where the acrid smoke of burning caught at throats, adding to the torturous thirst which dried a man's mouth when he tore cartridge paper with his teeth. Drew and Croxton took sketchy orders from Captain Quirk, their eyes red-rimmed with fatigue above their powder-blackened lips and chins. Fan out, be eyes and ears for the column moving into the Paris Pike. Croxton's grin had no humor in it as they turned aside into a field to make better time away from the cluttered highway. Looks like the butter's spread a mite thin on the bread this time, he commented. But the general's sure playing like he has all the aces in hand. Which way to sniff out a Yankee? I say, any point on the compass now? Listen. Sam's hand went up. They ain't any guns of ours. The rumble was distant, but Drew believed Croxton was right. Through the dark, guns were moving up. The wasps were closing in on the disturbers of their nest, and every one of them carried a healthy stinger. He thought of what he had seen today. Too many empty cartridge boxes and field rifles still carried by men who would not, in spite of orders, discard them for the Yankee guns with ammunition to spare. Empty guns, worn-out men, weary horses, and Yankee guns moving confidently up through the night. End of Chapter 2